I'd like to invite you to turn back to the New Testament book of James. We started this series some time ago. We took a break for our Advent um, series, for which I'm so thankful for the ministry of the Word of God during our Advent season, um, delivered through Brett and Adam, Pastor Brett and Pastor Adam. Thankful for our preaching team, the fruit of their, their labor in the Word of God. But welcome back to James, James chapter 3. I'd like to read the passage, first of all, that we're going to be focusing on this morning and then kind of go back and maybe rewind the tape a bit. It never hurts to review, especially if we've stepped away for a while. And so we're going to do a bit of that, but then we're going to get to the heart of the matter. James writes in his epistle, the third chapter, starting with verse 13, he begins with a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. James has been profoundly practical. There has been A couple of times where we've had to make our way through some fairly deep theological waters, but he's getting to the heart of the matter. And you remember, he began this letter by telling us right at the beginning that this was going to hurt. He was going to get into our souls. He was going to start to step on some of our toes a little bit in terms of how we live and how we view ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ. And that never hurts, does it? To kind of look at our lives and kind of especially under the the lens of God's word and take a fresh assessment. I think one of the most helpful lessons from James at the beginning was as he describes the word of God as being a mirror. How clear is that? When we look at God's word, whatever passage, whatever form, whatever genre of truth we're looking at in the scriptures, James says, God says through James that we're looking into a mirror A mirror reflects ourselves. We see clearly when we look into a mirror and then we have a decision to make. We can either, James says, first of all, walk away and act like we never saw what we saw. (laughs) Just forget it. Or we can actually do what it says. Respond to what we see. This is the Word of God. It's a mirror. And this passage also is a compelling mirror into our lives. This is a lesson from James about two forms of wisdom. The word he uses is a Greek word, sophos. We get our word philosophy. We all have a philosophy of living. It's how and upon what we build our lives, the way we order our days, the way we manage our priorities and decide upon things. That's the philosophy of our living. You're here today, in fact, at various levels, for certain, because we're at all different places in our journey of seeking after God. But you're here because somewhere in your wisdom, in your philosophy, 
you believe there is a need for something outside yourself. Or you wouldn't be here. You you believe that there is a need for some sort of supernatural exposure and influence that is beyond you. And James breaks that down. He breaks down our existence, our living, into two very profound, powerful philosophies. First of all, a philosophy that is holy and purely based on myself. It's my wisdom. And there's also a life that is built on wisdom that, James says, comes from heaven. It's supernatural. It comes from God. And it's a wisdom that seeks to serve all things outside of ourselves. And he asked the question, who is wise among us? Literally, the question is, who is it out there that in your own assessment, you feel like you're on the right track in your life? That's the question. Not who is really wise, but who is wise in your own eyes, in your own assessment of your life, the way you're living, the way you're ordering your day, the way you're managing and setting up your priorities or raising your children or following the track of, of your career or your education. Who is it out there who is wise? Now, James clearly had some specific people in mind. He was probably talking to the people who they called the wise ones, the scribes, the teachers of the law, those who had these great deposits of learning and truth. So there was a specific group to which he was applying these truths. But this this goes wider than that. And the answer to that question, according to God, is the one who is wise is the one who shows it by Living as God says we ought to live, accepting the responsibility to live morally, humbly, and with a focus on doing rightly toward others. That, that's basically what he means by says, if you, if you think you're living wise in your own understanding, then let, let me see it by the way you live. Live the good life. And let there be evidence of action, deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. He calls out the markers. First of all, he talks about the good life. Do what's right. I can remember when I was a teenager, and that was a while ago, um, but there was a lot going on in our house, especially on the weekends after the kind of the homework was done and school was over for the week, and we'd set out on whatever course we had determined was the right course for us to hang out with our friends, and we were scrambling to see who would drive what car and, and whatever else, and, and we'd gather ourselves together, and we'd strike out on a Friday night, and amid the din, kind of rising above the din was my mother's kind of still small voice, and this is what she'd say to me just as I, I left the gate of the house, she'd say, Mark, do do the right thing. Oh, that's, I can still hear that voice in my mind and in my heart. That's James. What she was saying was, listen, out there you're going to have a lot of options. <laughs> There's a landscape of possibilities in the given time that you're going to be allowed to be out of this house before curfew. And I'm asking you to keep in the brain, keep forefront in your mind the right thing. Do what's right. James is saying, listen, if you think you're wise, if you think you're on track with your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, whether you're a scribe, a scholar, teacher, professor, teenager, husband, mother, follower, whatever, I want to see that. I want to see that in the way you live. And I want to see it in the way you act towards others. More importantly, and this is the tricky part, And we're going to spend most of our time here this morning. 
I want to see it in your attitude. Because there is a philosophy that is not from God that is also prevailing and penetrates every aspect of our lives. But it is not the genuine item. And it guides your thoughts. It guides your deeds. It guides your attitude. It guides the way you live. The way you set up and manage your day and your priorities and all of your affections. The way you raise your children. The way you track for your life. All of these things. It, it's, it's the other option that James describes in great detail. Surprising detail. But it's not, it's not the real deal. So there's two ways. We're going to look at them both this morning. First, it comes with a strong uh, exhortation. Do what's right. Do what's right. Live the good life. Prove it with deeds. Show it with actions. Live the good life with a compelling posture that comes from a heavenly wisdom. Now this word wise was used for the scribe or the teacher, the expert, as I said in truth. But it applies to all of us. James as a pastor, by the way, had a unique perspective. Our guest spent many, many years, I was glad to hear, as a pastor. <laughs> this gives him some He knows what it, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ across the experience. James did too. I read a book many years ago that altered my personal philosophy of ministry. Robert Anderson wrote it. It was called They Smell Like Sheep. Great book. The idea is that people are sheep. You and I are sheep. According to the scriptures, that's a metaphor for how we are in God's eyes. And sheep aren't all that pleasant at times to work around. I know I'm not and be with. But the role of the shepherd, you see, is to live among, serve, herd, feed, tend a flock of sheep. Mostly in the field, often in obscurity. But we're shepherds. And I recall something that he wrote that has never left me. He said, you know how to tell if a shepherd is doing his job. He smells like sheep. He smells like sheep. James smelled like sheep. He was there. He had specific people in his mind and in his heart and in his target as he wrote this powerful, practical epistle. And he was concerned that those who thought they were on track really understood where their wisdom was coming from. Was it coming from heaven, from God? That's the real deal? Or was it coming from somewhere else? Now James is talking to sheep. He says, if you claim to be one of the wise, the faithful, the expert, a follower of Jesus Christ in your living, let there be evidence in your deeds. And let your posture be marked with a certain meekness. This is what he says. Let your deeds be done in humility. The, the actual translation is gentleness that comes from wisdom. A gentleness, a constant deferring of thought, ambition, desire, agenda, and emotion to be other-centered, not self-centered. This is not passive meekness, kind of like roll over and let everybody run roughshod over you. That, that's a misconception of biblical gentleness. No, this is an idea of active attitude of deliberate acceptance. I think of a horse. Just think of this big animal. It's immense. It's enormous in its power and resourceful. But once it's broken, it willfully accepts its lead. That's the word. 
godly gentleness comes only from the Spirit. It comes from heaven. It doesn't come from earth. It's not mine. It's not innate. It can't be learned, taught, caught, instilled. It is formed within me by the Spirit of God as I embrace the wisdom from above. It's a miracle, not determination. It's obedience. It's not grudging compliance. It's spirit, spirit. Now, just to give you an example of how radical this is, hold your finger there or whatever you do on your device and turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Back to the Gospels, to the left in my Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the pewbacks in front of you. Take those and use them. Take them with you if you'd like. Um, We'd like you to have a copy of the Scriptures. Luke chapter 6, starting with verse 27. These are the words of Jesus talking about this attitude of meekness and gentleness, this power, resourcefulness under the control of the Spirit. Now listen, but to you who are listening, that's all of us, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. (laughs) Doesn't sound very American, does it? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now that's not natural. That is supernatural wisdom. That comes from heaven. Right? That kid bothers you one more time, you cold cock him and put his lights out. He'll never do it again. <laughs> That's more like it. Jesus said, Turn the other cheek. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt. Give to everyone who asks you. Not just those you deem qualified. Give to everyone who asks. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Now this is wisdom that's from heaven. And it's forms within us by the Spirit of God a a new ethic, an attitude, a posture toward others that is not of this world. It's this godly gentleness. It's grace and power and restraint. (laughs) Now Matthew 27, you you can leave Luke and go to Matthew just a few pages over to the left again if you're in the bound copy of the Scriptures. Matthew 27. This is the end of Jesus' ministry. He's before Pilate. It's kind of a kangaroo court. All manner of injustices being um, roiled against him. Matthew writes in verse 11, starting in verse 11 of Matthew 27, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied. 
when he was accused, now that sounds like Luke, doesn't it? When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Now, I don't know when the last time you were accused of something unjustly. What was your instinct? Based on your sophos, how were you compelled to respond? Jesus did not reply to the accusations, though they were clearly false and trumped up. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? It had become widespread, which all false accusations do, by the way. Uh, But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Why was this governor so unbelievably amazed? Because he was operating under a completely different sophos, a philosophy of wisdom that was not from heaven. It came from earth. He was amazed. Given the opportunity before the most powerful person in the region for Jesus to give the most compelling defense for his character, he remained silent. If you you are wise, if you are considering yourself, your family, kind of your program on track, listen, make sure it squares with the wisdom from heaven. Let me see it in the way you live your life. I want to see it in your attitude. I want to see it in your deeds. The way you respond to people. The way you respond to injustices. When things aren't fair. When people trample on your lawn. When people deny your family privileges and rights. Let this attitude of gentleness play out in everything. Because this wisdom comes from heaven. And what is on display most compellingly is this godly gentleness, this power, this immense resource under the Spirit's control with an attitude of accepting the lead of others. Wow, that can only come from God. Now, many years ago in my other life, I served um, as a very young person, um, a a powerful, brilliant uh, professional in publishing. He was enormously successful editor and publisher uh, in New York, and I was a junior editor long, 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 long time ago, and this individual took me under his wing, did not know me, but saw a little something there. He trained me up, and he believed in me, and he published in the humanities. I was the assistant editor. He published so successfully, primarily in art history and music history. And we worked long hours. I followed him around the country. We did things I'm putting together what became the Prentice Hall, Simon & Schuster History of Music series, and under his strong arm and genius and care, that series won a very prestigious ASCAP, which is the American uh, Society of Authors, Composers, and Publishers Award for Excellence in Publishing in the Arts. Bud Therian was his name, had never trained one second in art or music, but he owned publishing. He was the most brilliant, gifted man I have ever known. 
The night came for the award ceremony to take place, and he had been invited by Morton Gould, renowned composer, conductor, and pianist who was the president of ASCAP at that time, to come to Lincoln Center to New York to accept the reward of the award um, for the series on behalf of Simon and Schuster. And he called me into his office, Bud Therian did. I was only in my early 20s at the time. And he said, Mark, they want me to come downtown Manhattan to receive this award, but I, I'm just not sure I can get away to make the drive into Manhattan. He made up something about his granddaughter's birthday party or something. <laughs> and he said, I'd like you to go in my place. Well, I just, I just did whatever he told me to do. So I said, okay, I'm free, I'll do it. So I went drove down into <clears throat> the Upper East Side of Manhattan, down to Lincoln Center, got on an elevator, <laughs> amazing building, walked up to the, it, the, the elevator went all the way to the top, and there were no doors or hallways. The elevator actually opened and opened up into this room, and there I stood. I walked in, the room started to fill with people, and first of all, the first person to greet me and this probably won't mean a whole lot to, to, to many of you, was, was Morton Gould, president of ASCAP, but he was one of the most renowned composers, conductors, and American pianists that I'd studied and admired for most of my music training, and he greeted me, and he made me feel so significant. <laughs> he thanked me for being there. A few moments passed, then the elevator doors opened again, and there was a little jostle, there was a little bit of a, of a noise, and in walked a stout, kind of brazen, all smiles, hair disheveled fellow with a couple of individuals on his arms, and it was just all of this kind of energy, and in walks Jan Brenner, publisher of Rolling Stone magazine. He also came up, greeted me, introduced himself congratulated me on this award. He had, Rolling Stone magazine had gotten an award too and he, he was there in this room. A few moments later, we're standing in a semicircle listening to a few opening remarks and um, just all kind of casually talking and I'm sitting there going, this, I, I, I don't belong here. And a woman next to me asked me my name and I said, well, I'm, 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 my name's Mark, Toby. I'm, I'm here representing Simon & Schuster. My boss, Bud Therian, uh, won the award for the Prentice Hall History of Music series, and I'm here to receive the award in his place. And she said, oh, how nice is that? And, and she said, I'm, I'm Joan Baez. Now, if you're too young, just Google that, and you'll see who that is. Wow. Now, I'm a music guy. And after this gracious woman, who, by the way, does not live under the philosophy of heaven, <laughs> greeted me with such kindness, in that moment I realized what had happened. Bud Therian, the one who had won the award, the powerful genius publisher and editor of the humanities who had labored so hard and pushed the team with all his wisdom to create this award-winning series. He was the winner. He was the one worthy of being in that room that night. He was the power. He was the strength. He was the recipient but he sent me. That's Prates. That's the word.
It's a gentleness and a strength of character and power under control that lives all of their lives, not for self, but for others. You gotta know that changed my life. Not because I met Jan Brenner, <laughs> Joan Baez, and that was pretty cool but because I saw a living example of what it means to be the real deal. Do you know what your teenage friends, do you know what your neighbors, do you know what your friends and colleagues, do you know what they need from you? They need to be amazed They don't necessarily know how to explain it, but they need to be amazed that there's something different about the way you do life. They need the real deal. And James says, if you think your life is on track, <laughs> if you think you've got this all figured out, the way you're kind of managing your priorities and kind of setting up your world and kind of raising your family and approaching all of these things. Make sure it squares with this wisdom that is from above because what it will look like in your life is this. And if it doesn't, it's not the genuine item. And he says there's another wisdom. It starts in verse 14. He says if you harbor, that's a, that's a self self-focused word by the way if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition or literally zeal in your hearts don't boast about it or deny the truth because the truth is verse 15 that kind of wisdom does not come down from heaven it's not the real deal that's a self-centered approach to living you harbor things in your heart, pain, shame, anger, bitterness, envy. You have a selfish zeal for your own life, for your own accomplishments, so that you can get ahead, so that you can rise to the top, so you can gain every possible advantage to live a life that is kind of comfortable and good. No, that is not from God. Don't even boast about it, and certainly don't deny the truth. The truth is, you're actually living under the wrong wisdom. It doesn't come from heaven. In fact, he describes it in three ways. First of all, he says it's earthly. This word comes right out of the Hebrew Scriptures. It actually comes out of the Genesis narrative, the creation narratives. The fall of man, all of it was good. God created the universe, everything into existence. We saw that in our Piercing the Darkness series. But what was not good was that which came from earth. There was a lie. There was envy. There was strife. There was set in motion a desire for my own personal gain. That's the wisdom that comes from the earth. It evaluates everything by worldly standards. This ought to be good. Why wouldn't we want to get ahead? Why wouldn't we have, want to have all the best advantages and makes personal and family gain life's highest goal? No, true wisdom comes from God. Listen to Solomon, Proverbs chapter 2. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. This kind of wisdom, says James, does not come down from heaven. It is earthly. 
He says also it's unspiritual. I want you to see 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Go over to the, kind of the beginning of Paul's first letter to the believers at Corinth. He's going to contrast two different kind of realities here. One is spiritual. One is not spiritual or unspiritual. James is describing this wisdom as unspiritual. Starting in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter, chapter 2. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. That's the contrast. There is a spirit of the world that is out there, all pervasive, permeates every aspect of our lives, but there's, there's the Spirit who's from God. That's what we have, re- have received. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom. Contrast that with those taught us by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. They don't make any sense. They cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. One is spiritual. One is the genuine item. It comes from God. The other is unspiritual. It's void of the Spirit. It's earthly. James says it's unspiritual. And then are you ready for this? <laughs> it's demonic. So I titled this little talk, Don't Be a Devil. <laughs> Nobody wants to be a devil. But listen, if as a follower of Jesus Christ, if there is no manner or priority or way in which you are bringing your whole life, the attitudes of your heart, the priorities of your living, the structure of your future, anything under into submission and giving God, Almighty God, an opportunity to alter or influence or sway that through the ministry of His Word or the Spirit. You know what James says? You're in collusion with the devil. It's devilish to live that way. Being a follower of Jesus Christ And living your life according to the world's wisdom is of the devil. It's demonic. I'm so glad I didn't write this. James wrote it. Our culture allows us to live a very comfortable, convenient Christianity. Take a little bit from the world. It's practical. It makes sense. Throw a little blessing from God. A little bit of Christian activity. That's the Christian life. James says, no, 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 no! It all comes from God. Bowing before Him in humility and brokenness and asking the Lord, is this what you want me to do? 